The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, tell your broker to uh, cover your shorts and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 382 with guest Andrew Dellen, recorded live Tuesday, August 19, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who says... I got your rescue package right here. Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome to .NET Rocks. Hey, it's Thursday. That means Richard and I are going to just geek out with you for the next hour. Hey, Richard. Have a little fun. Having some fun. So, yeah. hey, you know, we haven't talked about your reno lately. Uh, it's coming along nice. The roof is starting to come on finally. So there, the metal roof is going on and... Uh, you can finally see the rooms have sort of taken shape. Lots of framings in place. Uh, should be so- done sometime in 2010. <laughs> Are you serious? Oh, man. No, it'll be done <laughs> next year. It's not going to make it by the end of the year. I just, there's no way. But uh, 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 my my lovely wife, whom you know well, was showing me her preferred bathtub, which I think is like six grand. Wow. I'm like, how much money do we spend on a bathtub? You take baths like once a month? I don't take them, you know, well, I have a bath once a year. I'm a shower guy. Can we have a bigger shower? They say, though, that bathrooms and kitchens are the place to put your money if in the house for resale value. Yeah, but only if we're ever going to sell this house. And they're carrying me out in a box from this house. I'm never <laughs> leaving. That's all there is to that. Uh, okay. Well, you know, somebody's got to pay the funeral bill. You know? you know what the real problem is? After I took the family to Japan... Yeah. They're now smitten with these high-tech toilet seats. Oh, no. The Japanese are crazy, man. They like, are crazy. Their toilet seats are incredible. A, it's disturbing to me that I take my pants down and sit down on something that's plugged into the wall. That's a mistake right there. <laughs> I'm just saying. Okay? Like, that's... 
115 volts AC, bare butt, <laughs> bad combination. Maybe but a battery. You know? I've been looking at these toilet seats. You know you can blow 1500 bucks on a toilet seat? Oh, my God. And you know why? Because it's got a remote control so you can lift it up and down remotely. And I'm asking, why would you do that? Oh, so you don't when have to would touch you ever- it. All it is is a practical joke. Somebody goes to the bathroom, you have the remote out the hall, you flip the seat up. That's funny. You don't have to touch the seat, but you're going to wipe yourself. But, okay, you don't want to touch the seat. Why do you need a wireless remote? Isn't it okay to have a button on the wall? Isn't that close (laughs) enough? Why do I have a remote? And you want to sanitize that remote every so often. It's just saying. good about having a wireless remote for your toilet seat. That's bad. (laughs) I'm not paying money for that. All right, all right. Let's get into better know framework. All right. So on the WCF front, uh, yes. we're going to burn through some classes here, get you familiar with WCF. All right. We're going to start with system.servicemodel.servicehost. Okay. It implements the host used by the Windows Communication Foundation service model programming model. I am reading out of documentation in case you didn't know. <laughs> Scotty, we come up here, I... Can't read the cue card. Very nice. Use the service host class to configure and expose a service for use by client applications when you are not using IIS or WAS, Windows Activation Service, services to expose a service. Both IIS and WAS interact with a service host object on your behalf. To expose a service for use by callers, WCF requires a complete service description represented by the service description class. The service host class creates a service description from the service type and configuration information and then uses that description to create channel dispatcher objects for each endpoint in the description. So this is the class I'm using to set up my application to be a WCF endpoint. Yes, to be a host, specifically, that a client is going to connect to. Okay. Use the service host object to load a service, configure endpoints, apply security settings, and start listeners to handle incoming requests. And if you have all your configs set up right, it's as simple as service host object dot open and service host object dot close. Nice. Yeah. So that's the whole idea of WCF is that... All the goo goes in the config file, and then you just use open and close in your code. Wonderful stuff, WCF. That's good. Richard, you have an email. I do indeed. From an unsuspecting fan. A .NET Rocks fan from Australia. Ah, cool. Hi, Carl and Richard. I've been a regular listener to the show since about show 90, and I really believe that I wouldn't progress to my position today if it had not been for the inspiration that you guys have been giving me over the years. Oh, wow. You know, if he really meant it, he'd send us a cut of his salary. (laughs) I'm just saying. Or some scotch or something. We're getting people raises and promotions here. You'd think we'd get something for it. (laughs) It must be Thursday. I'm getting surly. Send me a bottle of bourbon, at least. There you go. Have some mercy. Come on. (laughs) You have to listen to me all the time. Right. Let me keep going here. About three months ago, I found myself living and working on opposite sides of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, which reduced my commute to a five-minute train ride, and I never had any time to listen to your show. I kept downloading and downloading, but the shows kept stacking up. Dude, do dishes. Do something. (laughs) I recently decided to quit the train and walk across the bridge in order to listen to you guys again. I now walk half an hour each way, which is perfect to listen to .NET Rocks or Run As Radio. 
as well as some great exercise and a sunny view of the Sydney Opera House each day. If I could throw one request at you, I think that Windows Mobile and the Compact Framework have been quiet on your show for a while. Maybe you get someone to talk about Windows Mobile Silverlight that's coming soon. Funny you should say that. Yeah, I just had a. We just did an interview with Rob Tiffany. In fact, that's right. It's coming up here soon. Yeah, it is coming up about another week or so. Uh, cheers, for Andrew Witten from I guess Sydney, Australia, because it's Sydney Harbour Bridge. Andrew, thanks a lot. We uh, we truly truly appreciate the, the the kind comments, and we're glad we could help your career, even if we are going to tease you about it in the process. But hey, this is what keeps us going. No two absolutely. About it. And uh, send us an email if you've got questions, concerns, comments, and you want to get a mug for your troubles, .net rocks at franklins.net. Of course, we are in the middle of our TechEd 2008 Barcelona sweepstakes, .net rocks sweepstakes. I can't, you know, I can never remember what order we put the title together because there's all sorts of information. There's the .net rocks TechEd 2008 Barcelona sweepstakes. I think right. that's it. I like that one. Yeah, I think that's it. And uh, so what we're doing is we're giving away a free ticket to TechEd Europe either this year or next year. All you got to do is go to the website, .netrocks.com slash Barcelona, answer a simple question about last week's show, and if you were paying attention, you'll probably get it, and uh, you'll be in the running. Now, what we're doing is we're picking a winner every week, and that winner gets a brain bag from Tom Bin, Tom, B-I-H-N.com. The best, best bags in the world. bags in the world, bar none. Every Every week we give away a brain bag. On October 20th, we're going to pick a winner from all of those winners. And uh, the lucky winner gets the grand prize. And you get to hang out with us, yeah. which is not may or may not be a prize. May not be a prize, but we'll get you there. We'll put you up in the hotel and we'll pay your uh, admission fee. Right. What do you got to lose? Not a thing. And you can put it off for a year so you can get permission from your boss. Yes, sir. All right, uh, let's introduce our guest. Andrew Dallin is a 10-year Microsoft veteran, having contributed to Microsoft's success in the field and at HQ. Andrew is originally from England, where he grew up. At 16, he was working in a bank in London and used to commute to work on the train, reading programming books. So Andrew left banking to study computer science at a university, a life-changing move. In 1998, Andrew moved to Australia and joined Microsoft Consulting Services, he worked in the field for nine years, training customers using the Microsoft Solutions Framework on their projects, and then Andrew started work for the MSF team in Visual Studio and relocated to Redmond. Welcome, Andrew. Hi, guys. Nice to be with you. So and you've actually jaunted around the world a fair bit, England to Australia to Redmond. Yeah, that's true, actually. Um, Microsoft's been very good to me. I've certainly had the chance to experience different parts of the world, and uh, I have a pretty confused accent, I'm sure, as a result. Yeah. What is the MSF team? The MSF team. So MSF has quite a long history with Microsoft. Um, it's essentially a set of best practices about how to do software development. Um, most recently, MSF has been put into a product that is within Visual Studio team system. So uh, MSF is now something you can actually action within the, uh, the IDE. Yeah, for a long time, the solutions framework was just a, uh, a website more than anything else. Right. Yeah. So for a long time, we used to describe it as guidance only. So it was essentially a training course of which there were sort of three or four versions over about a 10 or 12 year period. 
That's right. It was guidance only. We've done some. We've done some. We've had some talks and done some DNR TV on some of the MSF stuff and a lot of great instrumentation. And uh, I believe there's a, a nice little domain specific language associated with it. Is that right? Yeah, there are various. That's right. There are various tools um, for NSF, and it actually has um, a process template system, so you can define. Um, your methodology and put that into team system and have team system essentially follow what your team is doing. And there are two MSF templates in the box today. That's right. Okay. Are you still doing that at Microsoft? Um, actually, recently I've moved on from that role. So I've spent um, quite a lot of time in my career looking at the solutions framework and methodologies in general. Um, most recently I've moved to Premier Support um, where I'm involved in building the best possible technical training for customers. So that's what I've just recently started doing. Ah, excellent. So we're here to talk about a subject near and dear to all developers' hearts, <laughs> Sarbanes-Oxley compliance and security and all of that great stuff. Security to, to most developers is uh, a nightmare. You know, not a nightmare, but it's just something that we don't like. Developers typically like to be as open and free on the machine as possible. And anything that says, you can't do that, is a problem for us. So uh, what kind of work have you done in in this area? Let's just start by defining Sarbanes-Oxley, or SOX as it's known in short. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, I, I think this is a pretty important area. So um, well, it's very important, actually. So, I mean, the kind of context really is that Sarbanes-Oxley is law, and um, it was passed into law in 2002. And basically, it was a response to several pretty large uh, corporate governance failures. Um, now, because, and these were in U.S. firms, and because certain U.S. firms had these problems, and because U.S. firms obviously trade around the world, it has global consequences. It's really Enron, wasn't it? Yeah, several companies, actually. Enron and AOL are the two big ones. Yeah. Well, there's several companies that contributed to the sort of need for this. Um, I, I would say it's not just about security, actually. Sarbanes-Oxley, I think there's a bit of misunderstanding about what it is and how it affects developers and that sort of thing. Sarbanes-Oxley okay. is actually about risk management. And um, it really relates to the, um, the risk management of transactions on assets. <laughs> now, when you hear that, you kind of might say, like, what on earth has that got to do with me, right? I'm a guy that cuts code or something, and like, how does that affect me? The, the fact is that software development is one part of what a business does, and in the activity of developing software, you are going to be uh, dealing with risks associated with your projects. Now, when it passed into law, um, it required that the executives of a company become personally liable for badly managed risks. Right. So, um, this is the outcome of the law. That's that's me putting it very colloquially. But it's really about accountability for for and of intent, right? Exactly right. So what that means is that you would typically work with um, an appraiser in your business to build a risk management framework, and then you would manage those risks. Now this all sounds terribly abstract, right? But um, if you're building a solution for a customer and you don't tell the customer that you're going to be late and that then has an effect on their business downstream and they then incur financial implications, um, Sarbanes-Oxley requires that you actually communicate appropriately and include the customer in those communications and that you manage that risk so that people are not exposed. 
Right. So that's the kind of gist. Of, that's the gist of it. So Sarbanes-Oxley isn't a framework to say you will do these twelve things and you'll be compliant. Okay. It's a framework to say you need risk management and it needs to be properly managed, and you work with an assessor for your business so that the executives can never say we didn't know this was happening. Right, so and I guess that's my experience with SOX has always been on the the side of building applications that reveal information like that so that, that stuff is known. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that's the key thing that I try to write about in the paper. I spend several pages, maybe we'll talk about the paper a little bit later, but several pages in the paper sort of explaining that this is about evidence collection, actually. And in fact, it's not a bad thing. I know people kind of groan when they think of this idea of, you know, their free-flowing agile development processes being interfered with. But actually, you can do this, and in fact, it can improve business behavior and make life better. Um, so it is about evidence collection. So if you can demonstrate that change is really well managed and the customer is always informed, then you'll certainly satisfy the requirements of Sarbanes-Oxley if you've worked with an appraiser. And actually, the customer's happy too. So it's not all bad at all. Not at all. And I mean, in the end, this is just about making information apparent, but... I mean, I've, I've always looked at SOCs from an IT perspective and in revealing information and so forth. There are things that developers themselves need to do around that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, you often see fields and other data being added to systems to capture information. And you often see these things around contracts and other things. If you step into the development domain, you might ask the question, well, what data do we want to capture on the development process? for the purposes of meeting, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley requirements. Right. To, to do that, you've got to step back a little bit. You have to say, well, what are the risks that we are trying to manage around our development process that we should be managing appropriately? So let's take an example. If we were trying to, um, if we were trying to demonstrate really thorough tracking of change requests in software development, and the reason we're doing this is because the customer is a very big customer and the financial impact to them would be very significant if we fail to manage change really well, then we might use team system or another tool to capture information about our change process. All right, so we might add extra work item fields or we might attach documents that capture the minutes of the meeting that talked about the change and the customer agreed the change so that later on you can hand this material very easily to your Sarbanes-Oxley assessor and say, actually, yes, we do manage change really well, and here's an example. So, that, so the process is that the Visual Studio team system is so nice in this because it shadows the development process, it shadows the development of code, it shadows the development of testing and the activities of the team, it shadows the flow of work through the system. It's very, very sweet tool. And you can extend it to say, I also want to capture documents that associate that are associated with change management. So it's a very neat way to capture evidence as you go. It's a very good system. So uh, take it the SOX regulations, if you will, or the guidelines or requirements, I suppose is the word, are sort of very general. And then it's really up to some sort of intermediary to determine whether you've implemented them correctly. Is there any hard requirements? No, that's, you're exactly right. And this is a thing that um, I think needs to be discussed more openly because I think there's a view in the industry that you can buy a software tool and 
it'll make you Sarbanes-Oxley compliant. And that's, that's not correct, actually. I would be very surprised if that were generally true. Um, and I also think there's another view, which is that Sarbanes-Oxley is somehow like a, a very rigid standard of, you know, if you do these 50 things, you'll be compliant, tick the boxes, you're all, you're all good. And that's not true either. So your point is exactly right. Without question, you would work with um, an appraiser who would work in your business to build a framework for that business. And that, so what typically happens is an appraiser will come in from an accounting firm, for example, they're qualified to do this work, and they will work with your business to build a list of, let's say, 100 risks associated with the management of transactions. Some small section of those risks might relate to software development. So what I'm trying to do here is set the context which is that a lot of Sarbanes-Oxy is well outside or can be well outside software development. It might be about contract management, vendors, you name it, right? But the piece that we're interested in on this, on this program right now is the software development activity and how that might relate to Sarbanes-Oxy. So your assessor, like you say, this external person comes in, builds this framework with you, agrees with you which risks you're going to manage and helps you prioritize them. And then within that list of, say, 100 risks, maybe 15 relate to software development, and then you put controls in place, which are things that actually help you manage those risks. So that might be controls around change management, controls around you know, um, risk management for the customer, and so on. So if it's as undefined as you say, is compliance merely subjective? No, it's not, actually, because the assessors are very experienced and because the end result on the customer is usually pretty clear. It's usually about some financial impact. Well, if it's as amorphous as you say and, and a little bit subjective, how do you know when you're compliant or not? How, how does anybody who's looking at your, your plan say, ah, yes, this is compliant or no, that is not? Okay, that's a good question. So the way it's done is that the risk framework that we've talked about actually describes both the control process and the successful outcome. Okay. So it's quite specific in that regard. So it's a mixture of pieces. You're right to say, you know, doesn't this come down to a custom piece of work for every business? The answer is probably no, because most businesses fall into an industry and fall into a, fall into a business style, you know, um, with their vendors and so on and so forth. Um, that's, that's the first piece. And the second piece is the framework that's actually written for your organization has control activities, um, has objectives that are very specific and describes what evidence will be produced to show that a thing is happening. So if you can't produce the evidence that change requests were successfully managed, then you would fail on that line. Okay. If you can produce that evidence, um, then you're in good shape. So there are requirements. It's just that they're very detailed and specific. That's right, yes. It's not a quick list. <laughs> it's not a quick list, so that's that's an important point. The other thing is that at the um, the appraisal time, and there are different types of appraisal for Sarbanes-Oxley that take place during the year, but the main annual one, uh, it actually comes down to an exercise of convincing the appraiser that the risks you described are being managed. So the appraiser may ask some fairly detailed um, investigative questions. They may say, okay, um, if you're managing change requests successfully, then you would be able to show me historical minutes from 12 of your customers that indicated changes that were approved by the customer and were signed off with cost implications. Please produce those minutes for me. I see. And the reason they, the reason they have the right to ask that question is because you said 
in your framework that that's what you would do to manage this. Right. So, I mean, really, the reason this is vague is that you're talking in general terms of risk. But if we get dig into building applications, there are pretty known risks around building applications. Like, you know, rogue developers building stuff that isn't been part of the plan. Yeah, absolutely right. So when you think about it, there's the way I look at this is that it's always possible to build into your um, procedure, if you like, checks to make sure that things um, were done appropriately. Right. We all know. We all know when we talk just generally about security. We all know that security begins with physical infrastructure. You know, it's like are various things locked, and do we understand the permissions process we use, and so on. All of those basics. And if those things aren't in place, then you know you can have fantastic server software and brilliant development processes and all the rest of it. But actually, there's a big hole, right? Because we haven't secured basic infrastructure and we haven't kind of managed who has access to what. Now, that's the kind of basics of it. Um, and the same is true with Sarbanes-Oxley. With Sarbanes-Oxley, the key thing is that there are several touch points that you can examine to make sure that things are being done appropriately. Let me give you some examples. If you wanted to, to guarantee that a build that went to a customer had not been tampered with, there are ways to do that using strongly named keys, using source control and check-in, using right. management of who belongs to which security groups and so on. If you want to get that specific and the risk in the framework describes that. That's the key beginning point, right? If you want to get that specific, then you could write down those things and then you could say, we can demonstrate that nobody has been added to this security group who shouldn't have had access. We can demonstrate that this build has not been tampered with because of so-and-so. We can demonstrate that the following people only had access to source code. So various things can be done. Now, also you can be quite creative about these things. You don't have to interfere necessarily with the agile development process and make it difficult for testers and developers to collaborate because you think that this might be, a, you know, might be necessary for Sarbanes-Oxley. There are all kinds of ways of verifying and producing evidence that your development process is sound and has been operating in a sound manner. Right. What I like about your particular example there is it's entirely likely that I already have all those practices in place. I just haven't labeled them as part of my SOX process. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik who bring you this special message. What's more important for your web applications? High performance on the server or on the client? How about footprint, number of server requests? There are so many potential bottlenecks that can drag your application performance, and of course, there is no universal solution for them. The good news is the guys from Telerik understand the complexity of that problem. When building their UI components, they isolate every probable source of performance loss. Then they apply a respective solution for different products, different scenarios, and even different browsers. The techniques vary dramatically. As a result, you, the developer, receive out-of-the-box, highly reliable components that are optimized in every aspect of their behavior. I'm sure you'll be interested to learn more about the various performance-boosting techniques for web applications. Just go to Telerik.com slash top performance for details and live demos. So are you talking about basically a lot of instrumenting, logging and things like that and keeping track of what developers are doing, uh, sort of Big Brother-like? Not exactly, no. My contention is that really the, the tools do this already anyway. And whether or not you're talking about you know the basic .NET material or whether you're talking about team system and the more um, sort of sophisticated you, things you can do with your team there. I think a lot of this stuff is covered. Sure, the build system um, and, is and, a nice history of what happened. 
Exactly. Or you can look at things like, you know, Active Directory, for example. You know, there are auditing modes that you can switch on on AD and it will automatically tell you what changes were made to AD. So all of these things exist and a lot of them are non-intrusive. So my view is, no, it's not about Big Brother. It's actually about communication and being very clear with the team that you know, we are responsible for these things. No, and sure. the, reason, the reason this is important is because downstream effects are very much amplified. So if these things are not managed and there is a big impact, actually people's careers and lives end up on the line, which is kind of really unfortunate and terrible situation. So it's about doing business properly and it's about making a, a more mature, mature process of software development. So a lot of it's funny. A lot of these practices are things we were headed towards in one degree or another, anyway. Uh, irrespective of our development process, it's just trying to gather them together into into uh, a set of rules that then get audited routinely to prove we're doing them properly. Yeah, and um, people shouldn't be scared of the word audited. I mean, it's just about evidence collection. Sure. Yeah. And in, and in fact, you know, if you talk to a developer and say, "Can you show me that this happened?" They'd probably be quite happy and say, "Yeah, I can do a query to sure. show you that." Yeah. Or you know. It's, it's all doable. So, yes, I mean, my view is it's actually a very healthy thing. Um, it's about the industry growing up a little bit and saying, yes, we can demonstrate these things. You know, yes, we are a partner with business. Yes, we want to prevent these um, terrible collapses of business. It's all, it's, I think it's all a good, a good approach. And Team System, in my view, is a really good way to do this because it's very good at collecting evidence, very good at shadowing the development process. So are there some tools that you can plug into Team System or settings or configurations that you guys have already spec'd out? that help people uh, comply? Well, what we've got today and what's described in the paper are some suggestions of, as to how you can do this. There are some very good um, websites and blogs out there that talk about you know, various aspects of Sarbanes-Oxley. I wrote a paper to, to describe, firstly, this need for working with the regulatory framework, in other words, building the risk framework with the appraiser, so that's the first step, and nothing can really happen until that's done. And then the second part of the paper basically says with these risks that you want to manage specifically around software development, which is only one area of SOX, um, with these risks, here are some examples of how you could do it with team systems. So, for example, you add fields to the template so that it's quite easy to capture data during development about what's going on. You can attach minutes of meetings. You can have customers sign things off and so on, and the team system will just capture that data as you go. So there aren't specific tools, but there is some quite uh, good guidelines in the paper that should give you a head start. Now, the paper we're referring to uh, is the Sarbanes-Oxley and Visual Studio Team System 2008 paper, and I've right. shrinksterized it at shrinkster.com slash 11D as in Delta 3. So if you go there, it'll take you to the Microsoft site, and there's an in, uh, online copy of this whole paper. Great. Uh, Andrew, how did you end up writing a paper on socks? That's a good question. I mean, isn't it the coolest subject in the world? Oh, yeah. This, this <laughs> totally rocks, man. Wait a minute. Let me crack a beer. <laughs> you know what I want to do today? <laughs> well, um, I'll tell you how I got involved. So um, we have built two substantial templates for Team System, and there are a large number of third-party templates. So the two that are available, there's an Agile template and a formal template. Um, the formal template um, captures a lot more gates in the software development process. The Agile template reflects more the Agile um, velocity and flow that you see on um, smaller teams. So in the context of the formal template, there have been some discussions for a while about 
um, having team system collect a little bit more evidence that could be used to support um, other frameworks. So theoretically, um, you could use team system to support any kind of framework, you know, whether it was some other quality standard that you wanted to capture evidence for and so on. The obvious one is Sarbanes-Oxley. As we've already said, um, Sarbanes-Oxley relates to the management of um, risks relating to transactions. It's quite abstract, and it's about a business thing. If we look at the IT-related things, Sarbanes-Oxley is also interested in uh, how you run your systems for obvious reasons, because the same kind of compliance problems can appear there. The thing that we've discussed is even more specific. It's about software development and Sarbanes-Oxley, so it's kind of right. circles within circles. So all of that is fine. The discussions we've had in the team for quite a long time is like, well, how do we tell customers that actually Team System, Visual Studio Team System, is a great platform for collecting this kind of evidence? And um, it's relatively non-intrusive, like because it captures data as you go about your development, you could you can just capture extra information and then make the auditor happy. So that we've had that discussion for a long time, and we wanted to demonstrate to customers you can do this thing. And so um, I got involved with a subject matter expert in the UK, and we had uh, long sessions with them about the requirements of Sarbanes-Oxley, the typical things that customers want to do, and then we talked about how Team System could help. So I got involved. Okay. And, and, and we, of course, the result has been this quite extensive paper. The paper seems to focus largely on the CMMI practice, although you're calling it sort of traditional? Yeah, CMMI is the, uh, is the template that it relates to. That's really only because the CMMI template contains extra fields that are useful for this kind of data collection. Um, our philosophy with CMMI, just to comment on this, is that it is essentially an agile core um, with additional gates and capture points to ca- capture data as you go along. So okay. our, our view of CMMI is not that it's some very large um, waterfall process. It's rather that it has an agile core, but it, has, it captures extra data as you go. And that extra data allows you to be more formal about the process but still have the velocity and throughput that is characteristic of agile. So again, I guess the question really is, if I'm following an agile process, do I have a chance of being SOX compliant? Well, my view is yes. Um, I mean, I should I should cover all of this by saying that I'm not a Sarbanes-Oxley expert. You know, that's kind right. Of, of course, I'm, it I'm all depends on the auditor in the end. Exactly right. So the auditor, this all comes down to the auditor, auditor wanting evidence in support of risk management. That's what it comes down to. So right. probably the auditor is not interested in agile or XP or CMMI. They're probably not interested. Because, you know, those are philosophies about how to do development. The auditor is actually interested in you producing something substantive in the way of evidence, saying, yes, this happened. And I have a system here that I can demonstrate to say this happened. You know, this process we said we'd do about this risk we've managed so that our customers are not impacted by schedule slippage or by poor change management or whatever it is that you've agreed to manage, right? So agile, I don't see why not. At the end of the day, if you can collect evidence to show that you did this thing, why not? Agile sign. And, and I guess it depends on the evidence that we're trying to collect. Certainly Agile, as lightweight as it might be, still has that basic mechanism of the customer's request for a feature then and the definition of that feature and the implementation of that feature. And, and there's risks incorporated into all of that. And if you're still going to have that record keeping, especially if you're using uh- Team System. Absolutely. So if, you know, if one of your risks was around the management of change requests, 
and the customer late in you know late in the day said, oh, "I need this new story implementing." The traditional agile approach would be to kind of work through the scenario, develop up the story, figure out what the the tasks and spikes are to do that work and to progress, right? right? But mm-hmm. we could easily say, why don't we attach to that work item an appraisal of the cost and schedule implications and present that to the customer before they agree with proceeding? So, I mean, that's an easy thing to do. You could certainly modify the team system template to support additional fields. And we are still running an agile process. We're just capturing more information as we go. And that's probably data we still already had because the customer right alongside that request said, and how long is that going to take? Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. And um, if you run risk management or issue management and you attach those risks and issues to the story or to the requirement, then you can demonstrate that risk management was done. So I agree. My view is that this is not the world's apart from what people do today. It may be a little more formal than what people do today, um, but it certainly is driven by what the auditor and the appraiser require of that business. It's not a general thing. So people shouldn't imagine, oh, suddenly I'm going to have to manage you know, loads of extra data capture because right. it ought to be connected with your business risk management framework. And thinking about what Team System already does for me, I guess the, the, I'm already able to record the, the task of this new feature. What I don't have built into Team System is I, maybe I want to attach the email that the customer sent originally for it and the the responding email where we gave them the estimate of time and, and, and delay and delivery on it. But that could be done, couldn't it? Yeah, but if those are the only two pieces that would make an auditor happy, we're not asking a ton of additional work. Yeah, exactly right. That's exactly right. So that that's really my point. Um, that's, what, that's what I'm trying to say. So the essential nature of this is that uh, people shouldn't. People often groan and think, "Oh, you know, auditing is a difficult thing," and so on. Actually, this is just demonstrating that the right thing was done, and I think it can be done in a relatively low impedance, low friction way. So, I guess I'm thinking about what are the pieces inside of Studio that make it uh, so helpful in this area. Is it really about that uh, task to development effort relationship? Well, there's probably, there's probably two main things. The first is at the core is work item tracking. And that's what you've been describing. So, you know, the ability to attach items to work items, the ability to link work items together, the ability to query on work items and understand their relationships, the ability to understand the history of work items and the changes on work items over time, all of that good stuff. And if there are additional things that we want to capture, like you know, new estimate fields or new customer name fields who agreed things, we could add those fields to work items. That's, the, that's part one. Part two is all of the other features that you can do with team systems. Build verification, you know, the strong naming of things, um, the association of tests to things, all of the amazing features that team system has that you can produce evidence about your development process. So, um, I think both of those things are very strong, but I think it begins with work items. And I think that's because work items most closely reflect the process of software development. Absolutely. If you're using working items properly, this is where we're naturally going to pick up uh, feature requests, change requests, bugs. All of those things ultimately become work items. So all of uh, Studio's capability to associate work with the work items is part going to be useful in the auditing process. So this really boils down to good record-keeping of what you're asked to do and what you did. Yes, but just keep that in context. 
this isn't about record keeping for its own sake. Right. It, it is without question, Sarbanes-Oxley is special because it is about the risks that you agreed to manage. So I guess it really, you know, what we haven't articulated here is the things that we ought to agree to manage around building software. That's right. Now, there may be other risks, okay? There may well be other risks associated with the operation of live systems. Sure. And, you know, you'd expect that. And then there may be, for example, risks associated with the transaction of external entities and, you know, the contracts with vendors and all kinds of other stuff. But that's outside of the scope of what we're talking about. So this is about the development process and specifically what risks you said you'd cover in that, um, in that area. While you're building the software, not necessarily while you're running it. There's a whole other set of risks when you're running it. That's right. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, Give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. One of the things that you've said now a couple of times is that in the SOX framework that you come up with, you define what you're going to provide in terms of risk management and in terms of documentation, in terms of compliance, right? You say what you're going to do. Well, when you say you, uh, yes, uh, yeah. but it's qualified because the, the you is actually agreed with an external auditor. Okay. So and that would mean that the you really is the executives that are on the hook for this in the right, end, right? And you bet. You yeah. bet. And that's, that's the major drive behind this. So. Right. You know, we can agree to do the right thing and we can agree to capture the data, but actually the reasoning behind it is that, you know, corporate governance failure and executives saying, I didn't know this was happening is not an acceptable state. Right. And we will manage that by agreeing what risks we are going to manage. Those risks will be formally defined in business terms and then they will drill down into all of the processes of the business, of which we right now are interested in software development, but... Um, you know, a business is a vast and complex thing, and Sarbanes sure. obviously touches a lot of it. So, I mean, I'll give you some examples, guys, that might affect, you know, that might, you can think about these and think about how they touch on a developer, right? Okay. So, for example, okay. let's make sure that in our risk management framework that affects software development, let's make sure that the customer is correctly charged for all changes. Right? So, when you think about that, you know, it's a, is an engagement management and a change management aspect. We want to make sure that all uh, changes we agreed that were billable are delivered correctly to the customer. So now you can think about that in terms of requirements. You know, the stories came in and the customer agreed them and we realized how much extra work was involved. If we sort of stopped there and just built things, that's okay. But if Sarbanes-Oxley requires in our business to ensure, to guarantee that the customer is correctly charged, then we might want to have a statement from team system of what were those changes and the estimates and the actuals associated with them. And then we want to marry those up against what the customer was actually charged for out of the accounting system. Now, that's outside of our domain, but in the development space, we do need to capture data about the changes. You see what I mean? 
Sure. Yeah. And, well, it's interesting. So, I mean, I, that original description that I just had, that I had, did earlier, where I need the document from the from the uh, stakeholder, from the business owner, saying this is the changes I want. I need the document where I said, okay, well, this is what it's going to take to do those changes. The next document is what actually happened. And that, uh, right. in theory, team system should give that to me automatically, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so uh, that, that's, that's my point, really, which is that um, these things are not difficult to capture. They're definitely related to business activity. Software development is a kind of part of the bigger Sarbanes-Oxley framework. And people shouldn't really see this as a terrible thing. Um, and they also, I think, should be a little bit um, questioning of, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley is a very generalized what I'm trying to say is that there's no tick list for Sarbanes-Oxley, right? You don't expect right. to get sort of like a list of 50. We did these 50 things and we're in great shape. Yeah, that's become you know, abundantly that, clear. Yeah, so that 50, that tick list of 50 items might be fantastic for your software development process. It might be a really great set of things to consider. But unless they're actually specifically bound to risks that you've agreed to manage, they're not, they're not going to help you, so in SOX terms. Um, for example, another one would be, are we appropriately tracking change requests? All right, so um, the customer is regularly, you know, updated on those changes. We track the progress. Um, all the changes go through team system. Um, we produce records to show that that happened um, and so on. Now, if that doesn't happen, then customers won't get notification that the schedule is going to change. They right. won't get notification that time is going to overrun or they won't get notification that... Um, you know, functionality will be reduced in some way because we're not managing and tracking change requests properly. All of those things can affect business, and software development historically has been notorious for this kind of slippage and so on and impact on business as a result. So uh, what we call this is appropriate tracking of change requests, and if, the, if that is one of the risks that you've agreed to manage, then you would put things in to track those things. You would capture evidence about that. It doesn't mean that you stop things from being late. It's that you just have good records of why they're late. That's right, and, you, and the customer was aware of it, so you informed the customer. That's right. right. And that's part of the record-keeping, is showing that the customer was aware of the delay. That's right, exactly. Now, on a small team, you know, where things are informal and you move very quickly um, and you have a great relationship with the customer, these things may happen by osmosis. You know, you see the customer frequently and so on. When you right. need to be more formal and you need to demonstrate it in business terms, then maybe you need to collect more evidence. The Sarbanes-Oxley requirements will be, from the auditor, will be that we do present evidence because at the end of the day, risk management is demonstrated by, the, by presenting evidence. When I say evidence, it's a very loose term. It's not legal evidence, right? It's actually to satisfy the auditor that these things did take place. It could just be email. Yeah, certainly. It certainly could. It certainly could. Yeah, this is more about sorting, you, in a small environment anyway, sorting your email into a fashion where it's associated with work items in, in uh, studio. Uh, you go a long way to making this work. Yeah, so, you know, the idea of saving things out of email and storing them as attachments is a good idea. Right. Yeah, attaching, attaching them to the work items so that you ultimately get that chain of record keeping. That's right. Yeah. You know, I'm familiar with some of the ISO practices, and, and a lot of this stuff feels very ISO-like. And when we were trying to go through ISO compliance in the manufacturing side, we would get pre-audited. So the, the, the guy who would ultimately audit us would come in and we'd go over what we're currently doing and say, if you make these changes and deal with these things, you have a pretty good chance of, of passing. Is that similar in the Sarbanes uh, process? 
Yeah, in a way. So in the paper, I talk at the very beginning about the idea that other regulatory frameworks like ISO and others um, can also be supported by the same behavior because right. they are at the end of the, end of the day about sound process being in place, um, about the, the tools correctly shadowing the, the development and the activities and about capturing evidence. As I say, evidence is a bit of a loose term, but it does mean being able to produce something to show you did things. So yes, I would say yes. The only kind of uh, no in that answer is that Sarbanes-Oxley is specific to your business. So ISO is quite standard, quite right. a standard process. Generally speaking, the ISO standards are quite standardized, whereas Sarbanes-Oxley is actually a requirement that you develop a risk framework um, and manage it professionally. Yeah, so there is some differences here, although I suspect if the team that works on this would be a very similar team to the folks that would get you ISO compliant. Well, there's certainly be the same processes around it, I think, yes. Uh, from a, th- This may be a little bit outside of the span of the paper, but we, we sort of danced around the fact that the operations of software creates its own compliance issues. But i got to think that there are things we'll be doing as developers that directly affect the ability of ops to be compliant. Yeah, that's a very good question. And I can see people defining risks to uh, manage that. Because, you know, at least the transition of a system out of development into production, um, you can see that there are all kinds of potential problems when, you know, you're standing up a new system and putting things live and there's, you know, the onboarding of new data and so on. All of those things may have to be managed. Um, So, yes, and, and another really good thing is having operations people represented on your software development team so that you... Sure. Uh, you know, you're talking the same language, they understand what you're trying to achieve, um, and they can sort of inform your development process early rather than you surprising them with stuff that can't be run successfully or has huge demands on ops. Again, though, I would say you just need to be really careful not positioning Sarbanes-Oxley as, um, well, it needs all of these things. At the end of the day, it is driven from the business. So if the uh, auditor or appraiser doesn't say, you know, in conjunction with your executives, if they don't sort of say, well, we need to manage this risk, then you, you, know, you wouldn't necessarily start implementing all kinds of processes and procedures because at the end of the day, they're quite expensive to do. You know? Yes. And, and another thing about Sarbanes-Oxley is it's, uh, it's progressive. So my understanding is that appraisers will actually start with an initial risk list. And let's say there are 300 for a big business. And because it's, there's a degree of time and cost associated with implementing those, they will actually start with the top 50 highest priority and work those first and then progress. Next year, we'll go after the next 50. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've not been involved with this, but that's what I understand. So by degrees, you actually address, you know, the next raft of risks that are present to be managed because, you know, at the end of the day, it costs money to do it. Yeah. And takes resource. Well, it's now you're on the treadmill. Every year, we're going to make things a little bit tighter and, and, uh, and evaluate more. The audit's got to get more complex over time, too. Well, I wonder, um, and that's an interesting comment. I don't know. I mean, if we believe in IT as an enabler and if we believe in IT as hopefully removing some of the drudge work and, you know, being able to capture this data and being able to shadow how we behave in teams, I mean, if we believe in that stuff, then hopefully it's not going to get worse over time. Right. (laughs) But by that same token, you said this is not a product. This is a set of practices. Yes. But we've got to hope that our products are going to help us do this. I mean, that's obviously what Studio is doing here. If you were going to try try and have a person by hand 
associate code and check-ins with work items. That's incredibly arduous. Yes. The fact that that studio does that innately, saving us a ton of work. That's exactly right. So it's a bit like saying, you know, if we manage the flow of work completely independently from the development environment, you know, that's that's not very good. But the fact that the tool does that uh, is a huge start. So our view very much is that, you know, this is a, a fantastic area to be in. It's a great business to be in because development teams everywhere want this support and the tools can do so much. And, you know, the, the tools are doing great stuff now, but there's loads more to do. And, um, you know, you're going to see more sort of neat things coming along as as we model the processes and um, as teams build new templates and, you know, as we apply IT to IT, really. You know, we've done it yes. elsewhere in business, but IT has kind of for some reason been the poor cousin. I'm not sure why that is, but I think we're sort of all waking up to the fact that we can apply these things to ourselves and get benefit. Well, and something we've been talking about on other shows is that in the team system suite, the architect's edition has sort of been the weaker link of the team. And that's really where these uh, work items ought to come from, from uh, requirements coming down from the customer and estimates and models and so forth. I think if there's a new, you know, with Rosario coming, more of this could be covered by Studio. More of the the things it would take to be compliant would be built into Studio. Yes, I mean, it's hard for me to talk about features, and I'm, you know, I'm not really in a position to do that. I will say, though, that the life cycle of development um, is a rich area. You know, right. when you think about the kind of extensive life cycle, and I think everybody in the industry wants to see just greater coverage of the life cycle. And, you know, so many of us have been involved in IT for a while, see the pain of that not being the case today and wanting to see much greater coverage of the, you know, the whole life cycle of development and operation. So, I mean, I just think it's a very kind of, it's a fantastic area for the future. And, um, yeah, it's a great area. Yeah, the, the, the tools will ultimately will provide more and more coverage, but you're still always going to have an issue of practice that, that folks are going to have to use them properly to get those uh, auditable effects. That's exactly right. I mean, if you, if you look at other industries, they've been doing this for a long time and they've understood this, I think, that's important, for a long time. You know, so they start with very abstract designs um, which ultimately become enormous pieces of material moving in and out of a factory and then finally become planes flying in the sky. You know, these, the processes go end-to-end and the processes harmonize all kinds of checks and gates all the way along. And those, uh, those connections are really, you know, amazing. Like, we talk in training courses about, and you guys would have heard this about, you know, if you find a bug during, you know, specification you know, you might save $10 kind of thing, but if you find a bug during production, it costs you thousands of dollars, right? Right. And these are kind of old ideas that, you know, go, but we'll go back to the kind of formal methods and the proof ideas. But there are industries doing this, you know, industries in manufacturing and elsewhere that are doing this and have shown that uh, the life cycle approach is a really, a really sound one. And I think that's what's, that's what's coming. Yeah, our ability, this is really, you said this right up front, this is really about maturing the development process like manufacturing, so that we are catching our mistakes earlier because they cost less that way. And But, of course, the big twist here with SOX is when you're not compliant, it's a serious liability. This is not like ISO where you get to put up a logo on your with your, your company. You need to be SOX compliant. It's, it's a Absolutely. law. 
Absolutely right. Yes. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, compliance generally has has a big effect. I mean, Sarbanes-Oxley has a big impact because it affects businesses around the world. I mean, there are you know, a huge, huge number of businesses affected by American business, right, obvious. So that's one thing. And other areas of compliance have an effect on whether you can trade or not, you know, like... Yeah, you can't... There are situations where you, if you're not SOX compliant, you can't do business with a company. Well, I don't know. I, I have to be careful. I don't know about that. But I do know with um, other areas of compliance that is the case. I know that ISO and CMMI, some suppliers have to achieve certain levels before they can be considered uh, to bid on work. Well, I think from the developer's standpoint, if you want to think from purely, purely selfish reasons, uh, it keeps your bosses honest, right? It keeps the people that are paying your bills in business. Sounds like a good thing. Well, it does. I mean, when we talk about the, the big failures that, that caused these regulations to come into play, they were doing essentially, you know, sneaky and illegal things uh, in, in such a way that most of their employees didn't know. Most of the company, certainly their shareholders didn't know. And there was no way to see that. Right. And, and their, you know, explanation of it was, I didn't know it was happening. Yeah. So this is really about making transparency through the company to the operator so that you can't hide those things. Yeah, I think it ultimately uh, says a lot for job security of a developer. It's in your best interest to be compliant. Yeah, and my, my, I honestly do think, and having, having worked in this area a little bit and having worked with a subject matter expert and having kind of looked at Team System as the platform to do this, my feeling now is that it, it, people really shouldn't see this as an arduous thing. It's you're probably already doing all the good stuff anyway. It's yeah. about capturing enough to be able to demonstrate that. That's, that's really the essence of it. And I also think that applying IT to IT through tools like Team System is a brilliant way to do it because the tool will support you in your velocity and in your risk management and in your burn down, all of the good things that you want. And it can also capture all the other stuff. So it's, I just think it's a great way to go, actually. I certainly wouldn't look at it as like, you know, the burden of auditing and the separation of critical relationships like Dev and Test. I don't see it that way at all. Yeah. But that being said, I mean, part of me says we're almost saying, don't worry about it. Our tools will take care of it in the next version or two. And at the same well, time, not saying, you know, this is not that hard, you, you, but you do have to do certain things and make sure you're, you're keeping records properly. Well, I, I don't agree with that thing about the tools will do it for you. It's a bit like saying if we build a fantastic um, platform for agile development, then you don't have to do very much because agile development is just going to happen. Yeah, the, the software fact, will the, just be great. Uh, yeah, the fact is agile development actually takes a lot of thought and it takes quite a lot of cultural change. It takes very strong management engagement. It takes customer education. Quite a few, We know this, right? And you've all seen agile projects that kind of like didn't work very well because people didn't get the basic ideas or for whatever reason. So that, that's, the, that's why I would say be careful saying in a few generations of tools will just do it. I don't think that's true. It is about, okay. it is about people and process and technology. So it's the three things. And the tools, what I'm saying is the tools can support you and you need to understand the reason why we do these things and the reason why we capture this data and um, if you understand those reasons and, and buy into them, it's actually it's a good thing, really. It's good for business, and um, it doesn't have to be high friction. So I've had a number of listeners send me emails saying, uh, my boss is telling me I need to be SOS compliant. How do I get started? What advice can we give them to getting involved in, uh, in making SOS compliance for developers happen? So that's a very good question. 
the key thing here is to recognize that Sarbanes-Oxley uh, doesn't usually start from the grassroots. So Sarbanes-Oxley should not be starting from the developer level. Sarbanes-Oxley is often done um, by an external appraiser coming to your business uh, as requested by the executives of your company to work on that risk management framework for the whole business, for Sarbanes-Oxley, and then the controls and risks and the evidence that they want to collect is handed down to the development teams to implement. So uh, developers shouldn't... Um, I, would, I would be surprised if developers are being asked to implement Sarbanes-Oxley from that level because it's meant to come from the top. So, as I say, I'm not a Sarbanes-Oxley expert, but my experience of working with a SME in this area is it's about an external expert coming to the company, building the risk management framework, and then the controls are then handed down and implemented that way. Very good. But I got to think that a guy who's now been told that, his first question is to go to the auditors and say, what are the reasonable risks you see us needing to cover from a development perspective? Well, I would so think that's a good that- idea. What, what, what would be a great thing to do would be to ask questions like, can we have a look at the risk register that the appraiser has put together so we can understand the risk we're trying to manage? Right. So, the, the, so what you can then do is be more specific about what it is you're actually trying to manage, the risk, the business risk that you're trying to manage. Because I can, I can see that there might be the possibility that you end up putting in a lot of additional controls and a lot of evidence collection that doesn't actually manage the risk. But those are executive-level decisions, though, right? I mean, that's, those are the conversations the executives are going to have with the, uh, with the appraiser. That's, that's really nothing for a developer to be concerned about, is it? Yeah, I agree. But, it is, but it, this the thing is, when somebody, if a boss was to come to me and say, hey, I, we need to be SOX applying for developers, rather than me saying, okay, I'll go push the SOX button, I say, great, tell me what the major risk factors are of the company. They, they should have already worked that out because they're working through the whole organization to do it. Sure, and I imagine those are the conversations that your managers will have with those uh, appraisers while you're in the middle of the process. Heck, I'd hope they've already had them before they ask me anything. <laughs> but if they haven't, I've certainly given them something to think about. Now go away and leave me alone. I have right. work to do. <laughs> That's a good place to leave it right there. Oh, I'm a little I'm a little cynical on this whole thing. But, you know, the, the reality is that often folks we get folks get caught up in this because they believe that something has to happen mysteriously around that. And and I think just putting it back to the question of what's important is the right thing to do. Sure. And it's good. It's a good thing. Resistance is futile. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, any other resources we need to know about? I mean, we'll certainly provide a link to the white paper. Are there other things that uh, Microsoft provides that folks need to know about? We don't have... Uh, so I would say this, that you should be very careful to recognize that um, it's unlikely that a piece of software will make you SOX compliant. Like, it's, I think what we've spoken about today in this, in this session is that you know, it is about people, process, and technology, and it is about being very connected to the risk framework, all right? So... Be a little bit suspicious when somebody says, I'm going to buy this package and it's going to make us SOX compliant because that's not generally true. And let me also say that Visual Studio Team System is not a compliance platform, all right? It's a platform that enacts software development. So, again, it collects evidence and can be used for supporting and collecting evidence. So it is not a compliance package. So you can look out on the web. There's some brilliant resources on Sarbanes-Oxley. Um, and, you know, people are selling stuff, and you kind of want to think very carefully about what they're actually selling. Um, and uh, I would say, you know, look look broadly and so on. Read the blogs that are out there. 
So the key thing would be to understand your own risk management framework in your business. Be very clear about what it is you're trying to manage. That's, that's probably a very good place to start. Yeah. Excellent. Andrew, thank you. That's a pleasure. Thanks, guys. I've enjoyed it. I guess it's been Andrew Dellen, and we'll see you next time on Dotnet Rocks. Dotnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. Dotnet Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 